This is the 10,000 Depositions Later podcast, episode 59. I'm Jim Garrity. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. I hope your week is off to a great start. Today is installment six of the Core Essentials series on preparing your clients for depositions. And I anticipate wrapping up this series in the next episode. Again, if you have any questions or thoughts or your own tips that you'd like us to share on getting clients ready for deposition, shoot them to us at depositionpodcast at jimgarritylaw.com and we may throw them into the next episode. All right, let's get started. So we've gone through a variety of points to discuss with your clients about the deposition process. The goal in this series is to help you develop a framework of talking points to go over with clients as you get them ready for the deposition. Now, depending on the type of practice, not all of these points may apply to you, but most of them should. So let's jump right in. Here's the next tip. I'll tell clients, look, if the examining lawyer interrupts you in the middle of an answer, you should either keep talking or inform the lawyer that you were not finished with your answer and to please allow you the opportunity to finish your response. And I explained to clients that I often see examining lawyers interrupt answers for typically one of two reasons. The first is that the opposing lawyer is just chomping at the bit to get into the testimony. Still not a valid or legitimate reason to interrupt the answer, but at least not motivated by improper purposes. And then I'll explain to my client that there may be another reason that the lawyer is interrupting your answer. And I'll tell them that sometimes lawyers may interrupt you if you begin offering an answer that is particularly damaging to their client. Why? Because a half answer in the transcript counts as nothing to a judge or a jury. And so I tell clients, if you allow interruptions, the reporter will note that you were interrupted, usually with two dashes, but that's it. The rest of your answer will be nowhere to be found. And if you allow the examining lawyer to interrupt you on a regular basis throughout the deposition, a significant portion of your testimony will never come out. Lawyers that use interruption as a tactic will not tell you that that's what their motive is. They may actually blame you as a way to disguise what they're doing by saying, well, you weren't answering the question that I asked you. And then after cutting off your response, the lawyer may swiftly jump to another topic as a distraction, hoping that you never finish your answer and certainly never intending to come back to allow you to do so. So I tell clients, whether your answer fully responded to the question that was being asked isn't just for the lawyer to decide. You're entitled to complete your response. If the lawyer thinks your answer doesn't meet the question, he or she can try it a different way. But interrupting your response is not proper. Again, sometimes interruptions are unintentional. Often they are not. There's no easy way to tell. So here's the rule. Never allow an opposing lawyer to interrupt you and cut off your response. Once you begin a response, finish it. Here's the next point. Do not answer until you hear the entire question. I tell clients you've got to let the lawyer finish his or her question before you start to answer. Just as the lawyer must allow you to finish your answers, you must allow the opposing lawyers to finish their questions. The transcript will become a mess if each of you interrupts the others. But then I also say, just as an incomplete answer is harmful to you, responding to an incomplete question can also do you harm. Why? Because you may be wrong about what was about to be asked. Sometimes answers blurted out in haste 
are actually worse than what the lawyer was about to ask. You must wait to hear the entire question, reflect, and then give your best and your most powerful answer. This isn't the lightning round in a game show. In this setting, speed kills. Next point to tell clients. You must read all documents put in front of you or put up on a screen with great caution. As I've said before, all your answers count, and that includes answers about documents. All things considered, I tell them, depositions proceed at a pretty fast pace. Years of events may be covered in the space of a few hours, sometimes less. Likewise with documents, you may be shown thousands of pages of documents in the course of a single day of testimony handbooks, manuals, contracts, long email chains, you name it. And so I tell clients, because your deposition, at least in federal court, is limited to a single day of seven hours, the lawyer is likely to pass documents across the table to you without any intention whatsoever of allowing you to properly and thoroughly review them. It may be that the lawyer just wants a yes or no as to its authenticity before the lawyer takes it back from you. There's simply no way that you're going to be able to do that without properly reviewing the document. You can't buy into that. If you're asked to review a document and to agree to its authenticity, meaning that it's a complete, unaltered, proper version, you must go through it with great caution. Once you answer yes or no, you're bound by the answer. There's no, well, I didn't read it later kind of answer. That later never comes. In fact, the transcript will not show you how long you took to review the document before you said it was a true copy. A judge and jury will of course assume you took all the time you needed unless you said otherwise. I may use uh, myself as an example when I'm talking to clients about this. I may say, look, if I were shown a lengthy handbook or manual in my deposition and I were asked by the opposing lawyer to quickly agree that it's authentic, I'm certain that I would look at the opposing lawyer with a look of surprise on my face and say, I've got to review this thing thoroughly, maybe every page, before I can say it's authentic, and maybe not even then. How can I verify a document's authenticity without time to reflect, or without comparing it to a copy that I may have, without looking at every page, without conferring with others if need be? And if the document contains signatures, checkboxes, or handwritten notes or narratives, then quickly attesting to its authenticity under oath and doing so correctly is probably impossible. Should I just trust that the documents haven't been tinkered with? No, nor should you. If you can't properly review them and then give an accurate answer, then you can't attest to its authenticity. I also point out to clients that there's another and perhaps more appropriate way for lawyers to show you lengthy documents and to ask for your agreement that they're genuine. Those are called requests for admissions. The lawyer could send you copies, allow you 30 days to review them, and then give you an opportunity to say, yes, I admit these are genuine, or no, I can't admit that they're genuine. So you don't have to admit that a document is authentic just because it's put in front of you and the clock is ticking. If you can't say so, you must not say so. All right, next point. I tell clients that people do alter documents, people or organizations, and it may not be obvious. I tell them, and some folks who are new to the judicial system may be surprised by this, but I explain to clients that it's not unheard of for opposing parties to alter documents. Be suspicious. You can't assume anything in an adversarial proceeding. 
parties sometimes do change the documents. It could be anyone from an entry-level employee to the CEO. Lawsuits are contentious. Parties may see the act of fraudulently altering documents as an act of true justice or loyalty or even vengeance. Sometimes people alter documents to protect themselves, and sometimes those alterations are very subtle. Some examples, a handbook, an employee handbook, might be a newer version with an older cover slapped on it, suggesting that it was in effect during the relevant period many years ago. A guide or a manual may have individual pages substituted or individual paragraphs pasted in so that while the overall guide is correct, key pages or key paragraphs are wrong. Some signatures may have been added, others may have been removed. Boxes that were checked may now be blotted out. Boxes that were blank may now be checked. Email chains may be missing key replies or responses. Documents may have been created on dates other than those shown and digital files may have been modified as well. When the stakes are high, you should explain to your client, some people will do whatever it takes to win. And that's why I tell my clients, you've got to be absolutely certain that the document is what it claims to be before you say so. And I tell them that answers like, it looks right, or it's probably right, or I guess I don't have any reason to doubt it, those are not acceptable answers. All right, next point. If you're unsure about a document's authenticity, don't take a stance on it. So if you refuse to say, or if you've already refused to say that a document is authentic, the examining lawyer may try the next best thing, which is to say something like this. Well, do you have any basis to believe the document is not authentic? That's just the same question coming in the back door. In fact, if you were not given the time and opportunity to carefully assess a document, you have no basis even to say, no, I don't have any reason to think it's not authentic or nothing stands out because those answers imply some level of complete or appropriate review. And I tell clients, if you do buy into that trick, then your answer is likely to be portrayed in front of the jury or in papers filed with the judge like the following, as if you had said that the document was genuine. It may be quoted like this. Even Mr. Hernandez admitted in his deposition that he had no basis to question the authenticity of the document. So I tell clients, you've got to refrain from informal assessments of documents shown to you in deposition or off-the-cuff suggestions that you have no basis to question the document. The person sitting across from you in our hypothetical is your adversary. All right, next point. On a similar note, I tell clients, opponents may have altered your documents. Once we turn copies of our documents, the ones that you gave to me, over to our opponents, there's a risk that someone has altered them. So even if you're handed copies of your own documents in deposition, you must view them as skeptically as documents created by anyone else. They are no longer your documents. They are copies of your documents that have been in the possession of your adversary. I tell clients during most lawsuits, parties exchange documents. We produce our supporting documents to them, they produce theirs to us. But once our documents are in the hands of a foe, we cannot say without review that they have remained unaltered. They may have been scanned in and altered in numerous ways. So even if you're shown copies of your own documents, use the same caution as if they came from a hostile party, because they just did. 
Now, I understand the lawyer may seem exasperated at your stance by saying, look, these are your documents. But disregard the show. All documents, once in the hands of an opponent in a lawsuit, must be viewed with suspicion regardless of their initial origin. All right, let's turn to some other points that I cover with clients. I tell them that some questions during your deposition are likely to be very personal. You may be asked a series of background questions once the deposition begins. That's normal and you should answer them without flinching unless I specifically tell you not to. I explain that some courts allow a measure of intrusion into the backgrounds of opposing parties. That ensures that within reason, details that might shed light on the case come out. I want them to know that initial questions may seek information about where they live, who they live with, the names of their children, how old their children are, and the names of current or former spouses. I understand, I'll tell my clients, that these questions can seem like an invasion of privacy. But here's one reason why lawyers ask these things. They just want to know, at least as to your friends and family, if anyone related to you is going to show up in the jury pool or on a witness list. Even close family members may have different last names and opposing lawyers commonly want to know that your brother-in-law, for example, isn't somebody sitting in the jury box and is going to wind up on the jury without their knowledge. I also tell them that another reason that lawyers ask about the people in your immediate family or your immediate social circle is to learn the identities of those who you've probably talked to about your case and you shouldn't be offended if you're asked about this information. You should generally provide it. All right, a couple of other topics and then we'll wrap up for today. I will explain to clients that you're probably going to be asked about other court cases that you've been involved in. The court files from other lawsuits or other types of legal proceedings that you've had connection with can provide a wealth of information to an adversary. And I explain that we make use of an opponent's prior cases as well, of course. This includes cases where you've sued others, where you've been sued, where you filed for bankruptcy, or where you filed for government benefits of some kind, such as unemployment compensation, social security disability benefits, or workers' comp benefits. All of those things can bear on the issues in a given case, and you should be prepared to reveal prior matters in which you were involved. And I also stress to clients that by and large these days, most lawyers have access to computer databases or even your prior interrogatory answers that will tell them what other proceedings you've been involved in. So frequently, these kinds of questions are simply an impeachment or a perjury trap. Lay it all out. It's far better to get it out on the table than to try and conceal something. And finally, I stress to clients that you may be asked, depending on the case, about your criminal history. Criminal histories can have some bearing on the issues in a case, depending. If you've ever been arrested, charged or convicted of a crime, tell me now. I'll decide if you should acknowledge the incidents or whether we should object. I also ask them to tell me if they've engaged in anything that they think might be a crime relating to this case, something that either has or has not been discovered but hasn't been charged. Got to know about that in advance so we can figure out whether to assert the Fifth Amendment or possibly even drop the case. And I tell clients, even if you've successfully petitioned to have prior criminal histories expunged, please let me know that as well so that I can make the judgment call on whether it needs to be disclosed. If we decide you must answer questions about prior criminal charges, just answer the questions truthfully and completely. I will not let an opposing lawyer dig any deeper 
than the law allows, which generally stops at the nature of the charge and the outcome. Sometimes lawyers will ask questions like this simply to cause embarrassment. And they'll do that even if they otherwise have a legitimate basis in the case to ask the questions. And you've probably seen this happen too. Once our clients become embarrassed or humiliated at having to talk about prior criminal charges, sometimes they just become too distracted to perform well for the balance of the deposition. It's just a tactic. So I tell clients, and you should too, I can assure you that everyone in the deposition room has dealt with people with every conceivable kind of criminal charge. No one cares. Just answer the questions and move on. All right, fellow warriors, that's it for this episode. I did want to mention before we wrap up uh, that we'll complete this Core Essential series next time. And I also wanted to mention that we are now available on Audible and on Amazon Music. So that's in addition to Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. So check us out wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, we greatly appreciate you listening. Thank you again. Have a great day.